with another episode of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the most creative string players in the world. The word prolific gets tossed around a lot, so much it loses its punch a little bit. And another term that gets overused, cutting edge. Everybody's quote cutting edge these days. Daniel Bernard Romain, or DBR, is one of the few people who I know who actually deserves to be called prolific and cutting edge. He's been breaking barriers and forging new musical paths his entire career. He was the first person to play hip hop in Carnegie Hall. He's played with Dizzy Gillespie, Ray Charles, and Two Live Crew. He writes for ensembles no one has even dreamed of yet. His composition, Filter, is a staple for virtuoso-level outside-the-box violinist, and he's written an opera, because of course he has. Right now, we're listening to his Symphony for the Dance Floor, a multi-sensory experience he debuted in 2011. You know, frankly, I could start listing his compositions and burn through most of our time here together. That would suck. So let's just get on to our chat with Daniel Bernard Romain, rock star violinist. So how you been, man? Uh, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, right? I, yeah, I've been well. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged because we're alive, we're breathing, we're here together. Um, seems like we're both sheltered. So yeah. I've, yeah, I'm, I'm blessed. We're blessed. That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah, you had a uh, you had a concert on Friday, right? Yeah. A radio a radio thing. How'd that go? It went well. Um, it, it's you know I'm. It's funny. It's I'm busier. I'm doing concerts every day, or something every day that's performative, and um, it went really well. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it was the Justin. It was the Holland Festival. Actually, yeah. It was the Holland Festival, and it was um, a piece called The Just and the Blind, uh, a collaboration with the great Mark Bamuti Joseph, who's a spoken word artist and writer, and uh, Drew Dollars, the great Drew Dollars, who's a, who's a, um, a, a hip-hop dancer uh, and choreographer. Yeah. But yeah, phenomenal artist. Does, um, does work on ballet shoes on point and can pop and lock and do all these other things which is pretty amazing yeah so it was great yeah okay i know we just got started but we we're going to take a number of musical breaks today he's done so much that we just can't we got to listen okay here is some of the just and the blind that he just talked about Thank you. 
The first time we see the sun, he is wearing his grandfather's face. The boy's body is still inside his mother as he emerges face first into the world. His face is a study in winter, in the miles deep heat beneath the surface. His face is a tribal mask bearing the crest of our family's fate. him first breathe, first breathe. Black boy beauty probably peaks at three. A three-year-old's face as he articulates his ridiculous three-year-old opinion is awesome. And he's chocolate in the sun. A perfect balance of bowl-shaped chub and symmetrical baby teeth. A face that spins fantastical yarns with dimples that compel you to belief. Assuming it's not cold outside and there isn't a perpetual dry river of evaporated snot above his lips, you love this face. At six, he doesn't have super control of his body and he feels like he's got to jump a lot. His first grade teacher tells him to face the wall. He's six, he's a jazz drum solo waiting to happen. His teacher would like to beat the drum right out of him. Can you imagine trying to teach a couple dozen six-year-olds, yo? First grade teachers are the shit. But his teacher's kind of whack. Lingering smell of an adult who's outmatched. Smell of grad school booty with no roots in the community, but maybe she can rap. At six, the kid's face is long, focused down, up against the wall. By 12, he tries... You do, you do so many collaborations with so many different people. <laughs> yeah. Like, like way spoken word and ballet dancers and, and you've written operas and, and everything. Where does, where does all the energy for that come from? Oh, it's dissipating, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it probably started, like a lot of artists, I moved to New York. And if you wanted to work um, and be an artist, you just did everything. You never said no. It really kind of started there. Even before that, in high school, I mean, I was always just, I went to performing arts high school. So my sisters were dancers, too. I used to play for their dance classes. So it probably started there. But, um, well, actually, even in elementary school, we all got together and played. So I was playing in, like, you know, orchestra. But then I had friends, and we were forming these hybrid bands of drums, bass, keyboards, you know, these kind of garage bands in our parents' garages. And if the drum kit player didn't show up, you play drum kit. You figured it out on the spot. And next day, if the bass player didn't show up or got grounded, you played bass. <laughs> right. And then, you know, uh, kids would come and you could literally, in our neighborhood, go from um, garage, house to house and hear different music. It's South Florida. So you might hear kind of Afrobeat over here, weird acid jazz over here, uh, hair band 80s metal over here. <laughs> and... Um, 
we would all do that. And I remember there were times when, you know, dancers, even visual artists would come and just start, you know, we were just kids hanging out and we didn't have laptops or things like that. So we were, what, what, what like my son and others are doing online now in terms of TikTok and sharing things and messaging and all these things, we just did it in real time then, you right. know. And that's part of it. I mean, we just, we didn't think that, um, you know, a visual artist or a dancer or even, um, you know, we had actors who would come out. They were in the acting, um, the theater, the drama. I think they called it drama, drama department. So they would come out and they'd like do a scene and we would underscore it. We didn't know what we were doing. But that's probably where it started because I never stopped doing that. So I just never stopped. You know, I got to high school, college, went to Vanderbilt. Then I went to University of Michigan. Just never stopped collaborating. And then, of course, when you get to New York City, the stakes are much different because if you want to make a living, if you want to eat, you've got to be very collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about um, some of the, the projects that you've been doing recently. Oh, yeah. So, well, like, you know, like so many of our friends, everything just stopped. Um, just, before, you know, I, I think my last few, my last professional date of travel, I remember, was March 13th, because that was Friday the 13th. I remember that. Um, but um, I, have, I had just completed a symphony called Riots and Prayers, of all things. And it's actually, talk about collaboration, it's actually a piece where I'm um, giving an outline that um, anyone can participate. I have a series of what I call town hall cadenzas. So mm. throughout the piece, we, uh, we set up two microphones in the aisle, two on stage. And throughout the work, um, we have prompters who invite anyone to come up to those mics. And for a minute or less, they can do anything. So they can speak, they can sing. You know, the audience knows they can bring instruments. Um, I encourage um, the conductor and the orchestra to have moments where the orchestra can stand up and say something or speak and sing. They can even plan ahead and have, um, I remember, I can't, the, the program notes are very, very dense and convoluted, but I'm actually saying that if you pre-plan, you could have a, a Baptist choir appear at that oh, moment. Wow. Yeah, anyone, it's a town hall. Right. Sure. So yeah. So the piece, and that's the whole notion of. I should probably maybe try to find the program notes. They're probably somewhere in this computer. But the the point is, is that it's a call for. Uh, well, I hadn't thought about it. Convening and collaboration, actually convening as collaboration. And this, see, this all started because I was um, in uh, Burlington, Vermont, as a cultural ambassador for the city. And I did a piece called uh, Voodoo Violin Concerto, which I kind of do. And there's a chamber music version for about 11 instruments. And actually, the great Mary Rowell, who was in Ethel, one of the founding um, uh, members, is in a group called Turn Music. And they're in um, Ann Decker. They're in Burlington, Vermont. So we're in a small club. I mean, it is a blizzard. <laughs> and we're actually thinking nobody's going to show up. It's a small club. And of course, the club holds about 50 people, and we had about, I don't know, 100, 125. It's packed. It's really funny to think, not funny, it's interesting to think about that as we're in the midst of this pandemic. So anyways, we're in yeah. this club, and it's packed. And I told Anne, hey, I'd love to try something different. Instead of just me playing a cadenza, can we just invite people up to say whatever they want? You know, the politics were hot. This is February. Anne was like, yeah, let's do it. And that's the first time I had actually 
kind of done this where I didn't have a name for it, so I called it a town hall cadenza. And I mean, I just started playing and I would, it's, it's a little more complicated where someone comes up to the mic and they start singing and then I turn to the band and I say to the drum kit player, okay, you know, like one, like here, do this beat. Like I'm just responding, right? right? So the orchestra's with me and we're improvising and underscoring what anyone is saying, right? And it was trippy. At one point we had these teenage girls, about four of them come up and they started talking about the women's soccer team and inequity in pay. And they had statistics. They were reading and they were passing the mic. I mean, it was heated for them yeah. and for us. It was really electric, right? And of course, you know, Mary, this, you know, was a great improviser. If you know Todd Reynolds, you know, that whole Ethel group. Um, 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 oh, Todd Reynolds, Ralph Ferris on viola, Dorothy Lawson on cello. They weren't there, but Mary was one of the original players in the group Ethel. Um, you know, Mary's kind of helping me. Like, just we're just improvising. It was really cool, man. And of course, presenting that to the Vermont Symphony Orchestra, <laughs> yeah. that was a negotiation, but we'll see. But I just happened to find a recording of the event that he was talking about here. Here's a little bit of the Voodoo Violin Concerto from Burlington, Vermont. We don't have the improvised cadenza, but here's a little bit of the concerto itself. there are a growing number of players though who have got the classical chops to read something on the page yeah and then when you throw at them hey i need you to sort of comp or i need you to chop or i need you to i think there's a growing number of players who can do that there are and and i think we're in a time now of i call it dual crisis where we have pandemic we have social justice and in between those two we have um kind of pain and struggle towards solution so what you just said is, is, is actually an opportunity. It's a challenge, but this is an opportunity for orchestras to look at uh, their change and what they do, how they do it, their union laws and bylaws. That's an important thing. But to do all that towards, in some ways, I would say a call towards, well, equity, social justice. If you look at improvisation as kind of um, a cultural in, right? If you look at uh, chopping as something that is a, a technique, an extended technique, as we might say, but one that is in some ways particularly American, quite frank. And if you, go, you want to go further, particularly black American, really, right? If you want to look at it that way. Um, I mean, that's really not the point. The point is, you're absolutely right. What is preventing an orchestra from making chopping and making improvisation part of what they do and being very vocal about it? really open about it you know it's kind of like saying if an orchestra really wants to be progressive okay let's let's say let's hire a resident dj 
let's have electric violins. Let's have electric strings. What's pre what, what prevents that, right? You don't even have to play electric violin. I would say, um, I mean, that'd be great, right? But why not hire a few? Just need one, right? right? That's the beauty of it. And to really make it a concerted effort to say, well, the orchestra really wants to be welcoming. Look at its instrumentation, right? I'm sure, I have no doubt, if Beethoven, Mozart were alive, you don't think they would be using microphones? Oh, for sure. <laughs> right? You don't think? I mean, they were improvisers. Right. Right? And Beethoven was incredibly welcoming. You know, first use of trombones, one of the first uses of trombones in the orchestra. So this whole notion that they wouldn't be progressive, it's kind of, you know, it's ridiculous. So anyway, sorry. Yeah, those guys were all cutting edge at the time. 100%. So what, what, why would we think they wouldn't be cutting edge in today's world? 100%. 100%. So that's one thing I think that, you know, a youth orchestra is uniquely um, positioned to do. In fact, for your audience, if you're in a youth orchestra or you're the parent of someone in a youth orchestra, rally, convene, get together online like we're doing. Come up with a list of demands. Why not? And not only for your orchestra, but for the professional orchestra in your town. You know, say, I want more diversity. Why not? I want to play work by different people. You know, I want my child, you know, I went through a youth orchestra program where I don't think I ever played a work by a black composer. I don't think I ever did. Not one. Did you even play a work by a living composer? I don't think so. <laughs> I think so. Well, I, we did an arrangement by our conductor of some Christmas tunes. <laughs> but no, I, that's a really good point. I do not recall, sound like I'm in Congress or something, but I don't remember <laughs> a living composer. Certainly I never had that experience of a living composer coming to work with us. No, this is the 70s and the 80s, 90s even. So, so see that 30 years, 30 years of orchestra playing. And that was at University of Michigan, by the way. Oh, wait. So, yes, you know what? Yes, at University of Michigan, we did do a few concerts where we played works like Bill Bolcom and um, um, Bill Albright, you know, Mr. Soul, and, and a few others for sure. But no black composers. No black composers. And uh, no, 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 real, no composers of color that I remember. And that was University of Michigan, very progressive place. For sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so it would be interesting if youth orchestras and their parents got together, come up with a list of demands for yourself, but most importantly, just as importantly, for the professional orchestra too, and say, these are the things that we want, and then challenge them. Call, call a meeting and just, you know, when they say no, say, well, why? Just always, the best retort, say why. Have them explain their position. I always say, when someone says no, you say, no, not no, now. Now, let's, let's not talk about now. Let's talk about now, and let's talk about why these things could happen. And then they'll say, well, it's this or that or the other. But, then, then, but you always challenge. When they say it's a union rule, remind them that one of the great things about America that laws change. Mm. Laws change. Of course they do. And then if they prod further, well, then you, you have to just know your history. <laughs> you, know, you have to know your history. You can remind them that there was a time when women didn't play in an orchestra. Go there. That was a law. That was a union law. And of course, it can get more severe. You talk about racial and cultural issues in terms of American uh, orchestral life and which, how it affects string playing, of course, right? But just go right there. Very easy argument to dismantle. Remember, any law was written by someone, and that's it. Any law can be unwritten by someone. That's right. Simple as that. You know, this year, 2020, kind of started out as uh, pretty much hot garbage, right? <laughs> the dumpster <clears throat> fire is a... Uh, but, the, you know, the last couple weeks have yeah. been, uh, I mean, really, honestly, give me a lot of hope 
because I see, mm. and it's been, I've been sort of in a dark place the last couple of weeks. I didn't even pick up my violin for a week, which is completely unheard of for me. Uh, yeah. I just, I just didn't have, man, I was, it was just, there was too much sitting yeah. on me. I just, I didn't, I didn't have any way to, I just didn't have the, the bandwidth to play. Sure. But the fact that the demonstrations have had the legs that they've had, mm -hmm. and I'm here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Ooh. We've had like five statues come down. It's a hotbed. In the last week. Yeah. And the governor's like, yeah, I ordered them to take down the rest. Wow. And, you know, there's a lot of legs to this. Yeah. Um, so maybe we're seeing the beginning of a bit of a cultural revolution here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I've called it a new reconstruction era for the arts. You know, after reconstruction, of course, in the, in the South, right, where you are, there was a period of uh, decades, actually, of, of consorted, federally-led, and community-mandated uh, uh, reconstruction projects that involved the arts. And I, and I think we're in a period where something could happen in a similar fashion, where... Um, yeah, you know, I don't know if it's going to be federally led, but certainly you're right. I think that the legs that you're talking about, how that affects um, musicians and particularly string players, is um, you know something that is an opportunity actually for us. I think that I have so many friends who are at negative income, so I think the first thing we need to address is, well, you know, how do we create an, a new ecology for the arts that really addresses. Um, uh, well, poverty in our ranks and inequity in our ranks, and I think we can, you know, those. I, I, I get a notion of, you know, when you the power of us to rally, you know, we do that well as musicians. We quite literally do, right? I mean, a, a rock concert or a show by you know anyone, Mark Ward, and I've seen your videos and I've seen your concerts. I mean, if you think about the opportunity for when you've got, you know, uh, thousands of people. In a, in a concert hall, which we will eventually get back to, uh, those are important moments for, for conversation and change. And right now, we're, I call these, uh, we're captive, these are places of captivity and creation. You know, what's amazing now is that this conversation is going to go out and be published at a different time and space, but the message remains the same. So I think that one of the things that I know that we can do as individual artists and as individual string players it's just to think about, first of all, the conversations we want to have. I mean, this is an important conversation. And when you say that this movement have leg, legs, I think you're right, because I think so much of it is youth-driven, you know? So again, I think that if I'm a young string player and I haven't really thought about, and, you know, I have a 10-year-old son, actually. He turned 11 yesterday. <laughs> got to change that. I know, right? Big deal. I got an 11-year-old son. He is anti-playing an instrument. Okay, he's all athlete. And I've tried, ladies and gentlemen, I've tried. I hope to say every year, I say, I'm going to save you. But he's really great in his body. He actually, you know, because he's an athlete, he can pick up any instrument and just immediately, you tell him what to do and he can just do it. You know, did a G major scale in about two minutes. Can you imagine? Uh. I know, exactly. I'm like, you know, that took me two weeks. But um, the point I'm making is that he is on social media every day. He told me about TikTok and K-pop stands and what they were doing or wanting to do in terms of this rally. God bless them. Yeah, about a week ago. But I didn't listen. I, I dismissed it. I found out about it yesterday. Right. And he's also very hip and very aware of whether it's Black Violin or your work or Mark Wood. And it's not just me. He just, they're cultural surfers. 
they don't have this notion of even classical music. You know, he'll find something by Wu-Tang Clan that's actually quoting a Mahler symphony or something, and then he goes to that Mahler symphony and then he asks me questions about it. So I think that that's what's so exciting. There's no boundaries or limits to the conversation, you know? And if they care enough, if you make it an issue enough for them, then young people online rally, and they rally globally. And I think that's part of the legs, and that's what's so kind of fascinating here, I think. So how we can make funding the arts you know, relevant. For example, quickly, um, say whatever you want about defunding the police, but the fact of the matter is, go look at your local police station or police uh, law enforcement budget. You know, um, I have a home in Tempe, Arizona. I was just curious. I don't know, there's about 100,000 people there, more or less. The budget for that police department's $98.6 million. So one could make the argument that just 1% of that, just 1% of that could actually fund youth music programs for several years, you know? So I think that's the kind of advocacy we need to start thinking about when I say new reconstruction era for the arts, you know? And I'm not talking about defunding anybody. If anything, I'm saying, we've been talking about collaboration. We protect and serve too, the same audience. Absolutely. Why can't we bleed a whole new era of, orchestra and string players collaborating with local law enforcement. I think it'd be great. I think it'd be fantastic. I would be 100% for that. 100%. Here's a collaboration Daniel did with one of his students in the DBR lab at Arizona State University. It's called Ferris Wheel of Fire, and the artist's name is Relia. And that's the thing that cultural change is is often driven by the arts. That's right. As much as the arts reflect culture, but the arts can also drive culture. 100%. 100%. And in the best way, in a way that speaks to, you know, and amplifies the, what, what unifies us. You know, I always say the differences are easy, man. Matt, Matt, look at you and I. Got this great hair. Got these cool <laughs> sleeves. You know, the differences are really easy. To my son, you're a lot cooler than I am. I, and, and I tell you what, he's biracial, and I'm telling you, he's going to see this. He'll probably comment on it. And, and that's well, the, I have kids too, and the, like everybody's cooler than their dad. Everybody's right? cooler than their dad, right? <laughs> but 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 that's the thing. You know, the things we share in common. That's where the art lies. You know, the things we share in common. And you and I can pick up what I call our weapons of choice. And, you know, instantly make music, instantly share music, instantly share culture. You know, you're in North Carolina. I'm actually in Boston, Massachusetts at this moment, you know. And we're dealing with so much as parents and our children are, our communities are. And you've been, you've been 
brilliantly active and vocal about it. And you know, I, I you know as a, as a you know may I say as a small business owner in in North Carolina and someone who's part of I would even say electric violin shop is is social entrepreneurship. I mean, it really is. Um, if you look at the musicians who have come through and done videos and bought instruments and been a part of uh, EVS, um, it represents the best world, the world I want to live in, right? So, yeah, I think that the more we can talk about the things we share in common, and, and I, would even, I would even say to young people who see, um, well, um, uh, you know, my son has this one child, I won't name names, who he just doesn't like. This has been going on for years, and we've tried, and it's just, you know. And I think I said to you the other day, well, what if I, you know, what if I uh, convene the both of you in a, in a basketball game, you know? We're just starting to get back to play, play dates. Oh, hangouts. I found, I just found this out yesterday. It's not play dates, Dad. It's hangouts. This is a big <laughs> thing. So parents yes, out there, sir. if your kid is, if your child is 10 or 11, ask them, because I made this mistake in front of all of his friends. <laughs> I embarrassed him. It's hangouts. Um, we're planning a hangout between my son and this person he doesn't get along with, because I want to see if maybe they can find common ground on the basketball court. They both, they both play basketball, so so that's I think that's the thing. I'm really interested in what we can do as an artist, as an artistic community, to just think about not just well new collaborations. I would say new philanthropic sources, and yeah, I think let's look to law enforcement. Why not? You know, they need the messaging, and they have the money, apparently. They really do. Yeah, yeah, they got the money. <laughs> yeah, so that's just an idea. Man, that's brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that's where some of the coolest collaborations in music have come from. Yeah. I mean, you go back to uh, Run DMC and Aerosmith. Oof, like Rick Rubin put that together. Who would have ever thought... Exactly. To put those two groups in a room together, and what came out of that was so stinking cool. It was, it was amazing. I remember watching that video. You yeah. Know, and Steven Tyler just, break, how, how symbolic, breaking through the wall, you know, right. with the mic and the, and the vocal and their shoes, you know. And it was just, it was so, you know, it, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's, it's fun. isn't it interesting how if, if you saw those guys, those bands on the street or even at their concerts, right? Because I think they started doing concerts together, at least having that moment yeah. together. How kind of incredible, how radical was that? Even now, that's what's so radical, right? Then and now, that was a moment where you were kind of saying, in, to dumb it down, you know, here's American black music and American white music redefining itself, finding a whole new common ground. You know, we should be aspiring to that in, in orchestral music, you know, we really should. I mean, I, I think I'm all for it. So again, why can't electric instruments and acoustic instruments find common ground? They do, by the way, right? We're doing this. In fact, Absolutely. here's an easy way to look at, to, to just prove the point. I don't know of any electric string musicians who don't also play an acoustic instrument. True. Not one. I know so many acoustic musicians who won't even touch an electric instrument. Right. right. So what does that tell you? So, sorry, I know I keep harking on this, but I do. I, I just, in our time together, I just want parents and young musicians to know that now is the time to, and I, I, demand is okay. Now is the time to make demands, make a list, and to go to, um, you, you know, to 
uh, your, yourself, your, the groups that you're playing with, your high school, whatever, middle school, elementary school, and also to challenge your local professional musicians. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and make those you know, completely outside the box yeah. type stuff. Is yeah. Like you were saying, what if, what if we said to an orchestra, you have to hire a DJ? <laughs> a, resident, a DJ in residence. Well, somebody's going to have to write music for that. I know a guy. There you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anyone else? I think children will figure it out, by the way. See, that's the other thing. We have to, we have to get out of their way. You're talking about legs. Absolutely. Let them do what they do. If, if, a, if a youth orchestra said, we are going to hire a local DJ or a laptopist, iPhoneist, you know, they, they're making music in so many different ways. Let them figure it out, and they will. We don't have to worry about, oh, how is this going to work? Let them figure It's just like Run DMC and, and Aerosmith. You know, they will come together, give them time and space, but they will do. You know, years ago, I think I was in Tallahassee. They have a lot of youth orchestras, or at least they did. And I was there, and, you know, it's like 120 kids, children in a room, about 60 adults, you know, their parents along the wall. And I didn't really know what to do. They, you know, we were going to rehearse my piece, but I had more time than I needed. So I said to everyone, okay, let's try this. Everyone stand up. Everyone in the orchestra stand up and move to a different chair. Sit where you want to sit. And you can imagine, at first, nobody moved. Right. <laughs> nobody moved, right? Looking. I said, don't worry, because the parents, you know, just be cool, be cool, be cool. Just sit where you want to sit. What happened was, one person got up, I think it was the oboist, and she moved over to the concertmaster, and they started having a conversation. And she sat down there, the oboe player. Everybody, oh, the parents, and suddenly there was license. All these conversations happened. And, it, and here's what was powerful about the, mo the moment, Matt. It wasn't a run to sit in the front, right? Because, you know, if you're a parent and your child plays oboe or tuba, if they don't have uh, risers, right. they're not going to be seen. It was conversations about, well, equity. They started saying, well, do you want to sit here? So, and after about 10, 15 minutes, it was an orchestra configuration I've never seen before. And it was based on friendships and comfort, and everyone was everywhere. It's kind of beautiful. And then we just started to play. Suddenly, the first violin sections are feet apart. And saying to them, OK, we have to figure out a new way to play now. So now everybody has to move. There were all new things happening because just because people were sitting in a, in, in a different equitable seating arrangement. And it was really exciting. And the parents were really excited. Matter of fact, at one point, we had parents come and sit down in the orchestra. Somebody mentioned that. Why can't the parents come and sit too? Which was really exciting, right? The audience members yeah. sitting down, part of the orchestra. I tell you, sometimes really radical ideas, it's a hairline fracture of innovation. Hairline fracture. And that's, that's what will lead to an explosion of radical and progressive new ideas. Well, I think you know uh, Dr. Wallace at Berkeley, yeah. David Wallace. Amazing. And uh, one of the things that he taught me was was as we're when we're writing, it's it's all about what your um, where your barriers are. Where do you mm. set rules for yourself? Yeah. Uh, constraints is what I was looking for. You know, where do you set your constraints? Right. Okay. This is we're going to use a we're going to use five string instruments instead of four, mm -hmm. or. We're going to, you know, so anytime you've got constraints, that sort of helps you define where you're going to be writing. Exactly. And in a post-COVID world where everything has changed, I think we see a whole new set of constraints. And I think creative people are going to do some really, really cool stuff. I agree. Um, 
with this new set of constraints. So I guess maybe the question is, where do we see these constraints, how they're different? How are they going to affect uh, the work that we do? That's a really, that's a really powerful question. I mean, I, I suppose um, we could look at constraints as compromise. That word comes to mind. Uh, but I also think of, I almost think of the opposite of a constraint. I think of the boundlessness of our imagination. So, I mean, David Wallace is so brilliant, and, and I am in Boston about 20 minutes outside the city, so he's more likely somewhere down the road, you know? Yeah. And um, I think that the, the Berkeley program has always been, you know, kind of radically progressive and innovative and collaborative. So I think that, you know, and one thing I would say is um, I think composition can be, can be really um, uh, democratic and equitable. I think that, you know, traditional notation is just one way to do it, right? So if, if, if we talk about the constraint of what type of notation system, oh, okay, well, I've, I've done scores with kindergarten children that are based on, on them cutting out of pit, uh, pictures out of their uh, uh, magazines or newspapers, right, or anything. Mm. So they become collage, I call them collage-based scores. So, you know, the picture of a horse might be F-sharp or some other sound like a horse, you know. Sure. And it, it was kind of amazing to see kindergarten children who are not composers in the traditional sense, and who cares about that, but they're very clear about the sounds they want to hear. You know, and I never, and what's interesting, I've, you know, you and I, we've played so much music and I've forgotten so much music, but right. some of those graphic scores, I remember, yeah, there was a, I could still see his face as a little boy and he was really into like the sound of horses <laughs> galloping. And then at one point he had a stop sign and then he wanted the sound of rain and he couldn't find a picture of rain. So he just drew raindrops. This whole score that I played, but I also realized an orchestra could play easily. You know? And I like to say, instead of defining each symbol, excuse me, just let them look at what he his score and interpret it, interpret freely. You know, I think I think it's I think it's exciting to think about, um, you know, what are the what are the constraints of our imagination? Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit depressing to me when I see these arguments about. Maybe I guess there's two sides of it, but I see these arguments about well. How would Bach have wanted us to play this? Uh, yeah. And, and you go, yeah, but I think like we've there's been 200 years of that. Yeah. Like I think we've pretty much exhausted <laughs> the new original ideas of how Bach would have wanted us to do it. Why not look at just what he wrote there and let's take that and use that as a springboard rather than a set of shackles. I agree. I mean, you know, the work of Gideon Kramer, for example, great German, I think, uh, uh, kind of Bachian expert. You know, even our Rachel Barton Pine, you know, mm. we have... I just talked to her last night. Oh, there you go. So, you know, RBP, the notorious, I'm just making this up, the notorious RBP, um, she is one of these musicians that just has an ability to be kind of uh, musically adroit and fluid, you know, from one vernacular to another. So if you look at, you know, pristine Bach playing, traditional playing as a musical vernacular, really interesting. And we have people who have always done it really well, like Rachel Barton Pine. Uh, I think a few years ago, Mark O'Connor did his version of Unaccompanied mm -hmm. Bach, really, and he talked a lot about phrasing and, you know. That was the, killer. Yeah, it was yeah. amazing. And, and it was interesting to see his analysis. You know, he's such a 
kind of dense and <laughs> meticulous <laughs> writer. If you've ever gotten a Mark yep. O'Connor newsletter, look out. Oh, yes. It's very thorough, but I appreciated it. And I, I don't do that. You know, I, I don't, I've always said my, my uh, left hand just doesn't do it. But you see, but that's the thing. Maybe I do need to. Maybe I just do, need to do it on my own terms. It'd be much slower. It probably wouldn't be as in tune. But you see, even that's okay. Because the point is, it would be me and my uh, conversation with Bach. And I think, I think so much of this is allowance, you know. And, I, and I'm all for, let's not talk about things in terms of here's one standard and everything else which is still what is our, that's just what we do. We scaffold things, yeah. right? So even what I just said, the notion of playing in tune, did Jimi Hendrix play in tune? I mean, there were times when he did, but I, I would argue some of the most exciting moments are where he's just between things in the moment. Who is the Jimmy? Well, let me not go there, but <laughs> you know, Eddie, Eddie Van Halen also, I don't think he's ever had a guitar lesson, my understanding. Right, but he's, he's you started as a drummer. Started as a drummer. That's right. That is ooh. That is exactly right. You know. So, I kind of feel like part of what part of what you're part of this is what are, what is our capacity as as a field of string players for allowance to allow other musical vernaculars and and to say that they're they're valid. I think I think it could do a lot, and we need to be proponents of that. Yeah. Okay, before we go any further, we've got to hear Filter. This is one of his really well-known pieces in the violin community. It's a virtuoso-level solo violin composition. We're going to listen to a little bit of Daniel playing it, and then switch over to a bit of Rachel Barton Pine's version. Thank you. 
Well, hey, I want to pivot a little bit. Um, I was watching one of your videos this morning, The Requiem for the Living. Oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> and this is a relatively new, new release, right? Yeah, it came out last week, I think. Yeah, I, I just want you to talk a little bit about that and the inspiration behind that, and then we'll play some of that for people to, uh, to listen to it. Oh, great. Well, that's a collaboration with Steer Film and the great filmmaker um, Carlos Toro. He's based in Providence, Rhode Island. And if you've ever seen Shark Week, uh, you've probably seen mm. Carlos's work. I mean, he's an okay. incredible, full-bodied filmmaker, you know. Before, um, you know, Rhode Island, I, I, my understanding is that a lot of Shark Week is filmed just off of the coast here of Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And Carlos had never scuba dived before, <laughs> never been around large sharks that can kill you and eat you and eat you well. As I like to say, it's not personal. You're just what's on the menu. And, you know, he took it upon himself to not only learn how to scuba dive, but he's actually changing how film, cameras, the technology works underwater. So I just wanted to start there that he's a brilliant um, innovator and filmmaker and uh, storyteller, I think. And be through uh, First Works, the um, um, Providence based presenter, and Kathleen Pletcher in particular, she brought us together in the confident hopes that we could collaborate. We're talking a lot about collaboration. So it's a collaboration between a composer and violinist, electric violinist, electroacoustic violinist, to be sure. In fact, in fact you were playing a, yeah. a six string on Played that, right? a six string. This is Marcus Cito, um, Ethica Strings, it's Bernadette. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that shows up. Yeah, I love the headstock on his stuff. Is always so beautiful. So beautiful. This is a black Nubian queen, as I like to say and um, all the toys and stuff there. And you'll hear it that um, um, we wanted to do something that was reflective of where we are right now, just as you're saying. And um, it's a, it's a, I would say it's a 30 minute documentary. It was a live stream. So I'm in a room and we're cutting between my live performance and obviously pre-recorded documentary material. So you see marches, you see protests, you see the worst of us, you see the mm -hmm. best of us all set to an electroacoustic, I would call kind of a devastating score. Yeah. Full-on distortion, full-on effects. At times, one effect, just low reverb. Yeah. Um, as filmmakers do, brilliant lighting. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, we wanted to really challenge the notion of what a live stream could be. And, of course, um, everything was actually um, physically distanced. I mean, I'm in a room control room, the cameras are in there being uh, controlled remotely. There was one operator at one point, but he's about 12 feet away. And um, I, I actually couldn't see anything. All I'm, We had a timer set up. So I knew the movements of the piece. I knew how long they were. I knew the general right. idea. I had seen some of the pre-recorded footage. But because of the lighting, all I saw was a clock. And I'm just okay. kind of doing my thing to the time and the name of each movement, you know, broken windows versus stuff like that. And, um, you know, later after we did it and I actually saw it, I, I, I was, I had never seen anything like that before. And, it was incredibly yeah, powerful. I appreciate that. I hope your viewers find, um, well, I hope your viewers see that as string players, as musicians, we can offer so, um, important social commentary. And we can be a reporter. We can be a first responder to what is happening in the field. And that's what yeah. that piece is. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily use the term ethnomusicology, but I, use, I would use the term documentary, documentation, 
cultural documentation, uh, score-based practice, re reportage, um, reflection, and uh, being in the heart of it. You know, if I was younger and I didn't have a son, Matt, and I still have my cool long hair, I know I would be out there in the street, probably with a violin that I could break. <laughs> You yeah. know, <laughs> part of it. One that, um, one that's gonna get pepper sprayed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But part of it, you know, part of it. Yeah. I think, I think that, in a way, you know, I'm older now. That was my way of being a part of it. And I think the 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 video starts in a way that, well, it, not to ruin it for your for the, anyone who's gonna see it, but I'll say this: the video, the 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 film, starts with me in a position that I have been in, in real life several times. Not that that's okay, but I think my role as an artist is to literally take that position and reimagine it and make right. it into something else. And uh, I appreciate you uh, mentioning that, that piece because, you know, it's, it's, um, it's where we are right now, but it's not where I don't think any of us want to be. Yeah. What do you have on it? Yeah, let's uh, let's hope that 2020 is sort of one of those those turning points. And and I think yeah. the fact that everybody's quarantined, yeah, and everybody's home, and they're bored to some extent, <laughs> yeah. and there's you know in theory, we're supposed to not be as busy as we were, right? Oh, Lord. I mean, you and I both. Have, I'm I don't know when I ever had time to go play. <laughs> it's true. I, I'm so stinking busy now. I don't know when I'd have time to go play. But in yeah. theory, we're supposed to all be bored and watching Netflix all day. <laughs> right. And and the the fact that these demonstrations have happened now, yeah. I think people have so much more bandwidth. And there's no sports. And there's no, you know, the, mm, we have an extra amount of bandwidth to say, 
wait, this stuff's, this isn't new. Mm -hmm. The George Floyd thing isn't new. This isn't something that was a one-time occurrence that happened one time in our history. And this is, this has been an ongoing thing. And wait, why aren't we more angry about this? Yeah. Well, hmm. I mean, yeah, I think, I think that, I think, I think the George Floyd murder, I think it, I think it clearly delineated four planes of existence, right? If you think about George Floyd was clearly the victim. That's the first plane. We've all been a victim of something. Um, God help us that we will never be in his position mm. or all of the souls and all of the, these kind of iconic, unfortunately iconic um, vistas of black men and women dying under the full lens and view of someone's phone, right? But mm. we've all been the victim. That's the first point. Some of us, plane number two, have been the perpetrator, right? So that's, that's the knee on neck. That's that particular person. Some of us may know perpetrators, and these are all different degrees. Number third plane is, you know, we're the bystander. We're, we're there on the scene, but we can't intervene, or we, we don't know how to intervene. I think we've all been there too. You know, sometimes you're in a classroom, or you're at work, you're at the grocery store, and somebody is saying something awful to someone, or God forbid, you're watching something awful happen, and you don't know what to do. And, right. You know, you don't know what to do. It's not just as easy to just go intervene. You could end up as the first plane, the victim. But then there's the fourth plane. This is the one, Matt, that we're all, that we're all in, the witness, the Greek chorus, after the fact. We're watching, just as you said. We're held here watching. That fourth plane is kind of powerful because it's not just that we're watching, but it's also what is our, what is our response to what we've, we're viewing. And that's where we are. This might take a couple years, but where we are right now is we've all witnessed something. We've all been witness to many things, just as you have mentioned. And now we're charged with, well, what do we do? And I would say to, to your audience, let's think about those four planes and let's think about if you were in plane number one, if you were in plane number three, have you ever been plane number two, right? Not necessarily, of course, knee on neck, but you've done something to hurt someone. Sure. Right? I think if we think about it that way and be honest about that kind of conversation, then the solutions come a little more quickly and a little more rapidly. I think as children who always are inspiration and influence, you're already saying this is going well beyond anti-bullying. I mean, can you imagine, for example, the next time anyone tries to bully someone? Just think about that. <laughs> Will it really ever be the same? I don't think so. I think you're going to have clear, fast, heavy intervention. The kind of behaviors that you're saying, well, why didn't, people, why didn't it happen before? You're right. You're right. You know, my son got into a heated debate with an adult around the Civil War. And this adult was trying to tell him that, well, the South um, and the North couldn't decide, couldn't agree, <laughs> kind of trying, you know. And my son was quick to point out, well, wait a minute, they could agree. This adult was Jewish. He said they agreed that um, the Holocaust 
and the treatment of the Jewish, of the German government towards the Jewish people wasn't fair. It was too much to bear. And the entire United States of America decided to intervene. At the same time, they wouldn't intervene for blacks and other racial inequity in our own country. He was quick to point that out. And again, this is where our young people are. They, they have a morality that maybe we, you and I don't have. I mean, I, I, won't, I won't speak, that's not fair for me to speak for you, but I don't have the same morality as my son. And he's making connections that I hadn't really thought about, right? Wow, heavy stuff. In fact, this whole conversation is pretty heavy, but we live in heavy times. So let's take a minute to catch our breath and we're going to listen to Daniel's tune, Fayetteville, from his Etudes for Violin and Electronics. And then right back at it. I think we get numb to things after a while. Yeah. You know, we see an injustice enough times you start to get numb to it. I think you're right. And, yeah. and kids, I've got a, a 12-year-old about to be 13 and, mm. and one who just turned nine. Mm. And, man, they've got such a highly developed sense of fairness. And I think that comes real, real early. Wow. As you know, if you've got a young, young child, man, you want to get a little kid fired up, <laughs> you put them in a situation that they perceive as unfair. Wow. Well said. Well, you know, so. they just man, that's that that pushes a, a hard button. Yes. you know, especially when you got two little kids. I'll you know I'll I'll take a a, a candy bar or something <laughs> and I'll break it to where it's three quarters and one quarter, and give the three quarters to my younger child and a quarter to my older. Oh, that older child is like what? No, 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 no. like he can't even talk. He's so upset. Like this is this is un, this is so unfair. That's right. So that's this, right. I think they've got a very highly dis developed sense of what's fair and what's equitable and what's reasonable and they're not yeah. they haven't been numbed yeah. to it the way we have yeah. and i think we have to bring that same rigor to let's say programming you know is 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 what a is a youth orchestra or even yourself is the music that you're playing fair does it really represent you know the, the things that you want to say or do or could it 
You know, that's a good place to start. I would say to young string players anywhere, just think about, you know, the, just as you're saying, the, the, the music that you're playing. Is it, is it monolithic or is it diverse? And then you can extend that to your string quartet. Then you can extend that to your music program. And I think it's fun. I think this might be a time of radical, um, radical um, self-inquiry. You know, radical introspection might be where we are. We have time now. And, and by the way, what you were saying before, I do think we have to be really clear about our mental hygiene. But I also think, as my friend Mark Bermuti said, we have to be very clear about our cultural hygiene. You know, and um, now's the time for, for introspection and even, even community-based introspection where we're all saying, you know, I've kind of thought that I'd like to do this. I'd like to play this music. I don't know where to start. You know, I knew, I, you know we were talking about Rachel... Barton Pine, of course, she's done so much in terms of literally a website, music by black composers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole notion of, of BIPOC, of, of black indigenous people of color, Latin and Latinx um, mus- uh, music and cultural expression, um, this is an opportunity. I think this is an opportunity for, for us as a community, just as you're saying, you know, what's equal? What's fair? Are you satisfied? That's another thing. Just say, are you satisfied with the music that you're playing, with the techniques that you know? I went to, I taught at Mark O'Connor's fiddle camps maybe twice, I think, two years in a row. Once in, uh, I think, North Carolina, once in New York City. And I'm not a fiddle player. And I was so out of my element, (laughs) you know? And to go into a room and have, I can't even, 100 teenagers who all knew the tunes. No music stand. Hey, let's do this. Okay. <laughs> These are long, dense, you know, incredibly ornate tunes. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole language that I don't speak. It's a whole language I don't speak. And I was trying to find ways to participate. I think David was there, as a matter of fact, pretty sure. David um, um, at Berkeley. David Wallace. Yeah, Wallace. You know, and, and, and you know, the, whole, the usual players. But to see these young people, so adroit, so capable of making music in a way that I could barely understand. I'd never seen anything like that before, and it was so exciting. And to be allowed to kind of, you know, in my own way, like harmonize or, you know, half the time I was just given a beat, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but that was, that just showed you that, I kept thinking that if any one of these young people had space to be creative with a professional orchestra, wouldn't that be something? What if a professional mm-hmm. orchestra said that, we're gonna spend a week learning an important part of our heritage, led by, the very same young people that were in that room. You would, you would change the industry overnight. So, Yeah, I think for, for our generation, I think you and I are roughly the same age. Yeah. You know, for, for our generation, 9-11 was a turning point. Yes, it was. You know, and and I, when I read a book, one of the first things I do is go to the copyright page. Mm. Was this book written before or after oh, 9-11? that's interesting. Because it's yeah, a different world, right? Yeah. And, and I think for a lot, our kids don't remember that. In fact, teenagers and really people in their early to mid twenties now yeah. don't really remember nine eleven. Yeah, um, and that makes me feel really old. But the I'm with uh, you. I'm uh, maybe twenty twenty is going to be at that turning point in their lives where there was pre twenty twenty and after twenty twenty, where the world's going to look a lot different. Wow, I think you're right. I mean, I was in Harlem in New York City that morning. My sister called me. I was actually scheduled. Can you believe it? I was scheduled to be at the World Trade Center that afternoon. For a rehearsal with Bill T. Jones and uh, Arnie Zane Dance Company, now Bill T. Jones Arnie Zane Company, but yeah, we were scheduled to do a concert in between the towers. There was a performance area there. You know, everybody did. 
So my sister called me that morning. I was sleeping. I was actually in a recording session the night before with Ethel String Quartet. It's all serendipitous. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember by that afternoon, I had friends in my apartment, some of them ash covered. You could see the smoke from my terrace. Um, I went to the grocery store that afternoon. It was on the radio, you know, over the, they were broadcasting it in the grocery store. We were all kind of like zombies. You know, my landlady at the time, Ms. Logan, she was, her, me early, her memory to what was happening that day was to Pearl Harbor and the siren sounding. And I think you're right. I think 2020 is in some ways, it echoes back to the so-called Spanish flu. It echoes back to the Great Depression. It echoes back to 1964, 65, and the civil rights mm. era, all at the same time. And now we're putting on a fourth notion of wrestling, really, uh, with uh, social justice, a worldwide civil rights practice. So, you know, all held within this new kind of, we're connected in a way, but separated. So you have these four big global societal situations, <laughs> crises, that are happening simultaneously. And you're right. I mean, your shirt says caution, and it's, you're absolutely right. I, I don't know. When it, I'm at a point where I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to be more afraid of. Am I more afraid of the coronavirus, or am I more afraid of economic suffering? Am I more afraid of a lack of social justice? Am I more afraid of what's going to happen to us as we're held captive in our homes and communities? Like, which one should I be more cautious of? Which one should I right. fear? I don't know. And you know what I do at night? It's funny, you're right. I mean, I have forgotten how much I just love to play the violin. That is my weapon of choice. That's my, that's my security blanket. And I do, I mean, I just, like you, there was a time where I just I couldn't pick it up, but I just started to again. I mean, these concerts I'm giving, I have to, but I'm, talking, I'm not talking about those public things. I'm talking about the personal, private, sure. two o'clock in the morning, headphones on, Yeah. nice reverb. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> always, reverb, a little delay. And I'm just playing. Man, that, that helps, that gets me through. Playing just for the joy of it. Gosh, do we sometimes forget that the reason we play is because we like to? When you do this for a living, it can feel like a job sometimes. So for a bit of fun, let's listen to Sonata for Violin and Turntables, part four, and then back to work.
talk a little bit about your journey then as a player and a writer. Um, mm. Just sort of give us the, the, the quick life story for people who maybe have not followed you as closely as they should have been. Oh, it's, it's fine. I started playing when I was five years old, Broward County Public School System, Margate, Florida, South Florida, just outside of Pompano Beach. And um, I, um, Mr. Miller, uh, had, you know, was my first music teacher. Uh, free violin, one lesson for an hour, once a week, uh, free, all free, free instrument. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, and this was that particular program. And, and in Broward County at the time, in the 1970s, 1975, I'm 49, I'm going to be 50, that was status quo. Every, every elementary school had a music program, hands-on, with instruments, you know. Of course, not the opposite, right, Broward County? Right. There's not, yeah, I think you have to wait till high school now, actually. But, but it was a special time, and because I started playing so early, you know, I was able to get into a good youth orchestra program, great high school for the arts, uh, actually Black Violin, Jason Derulo, you know, Dillard School of the Performing Arts in Fort Lauderdale. We've had a lot of incredible musicians come out of there. And uh, that got me to Vanderbilt University in New York, I mean, in Nashville. And that, uh, Vanderbilt then got me to Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, where I studied with all different types of teachers and I was doing composition, of course. I don't have any degrees in violin. By the way, I only had degrees in composition and theory. And uh, that got me in 1997 to New York City, January 1st, 1997. I moved in, I'm you know, still there, still in Boston. Just bought a house in Tempe, a live workspace. But you know, the real trajectory is that I was started when I was five years old in a music program, and that propelled me all the way to a, uh, a doctorate in uh, music composition and theory through the University of Michigan in 2000. And all of that education got me to a position now where I'm basically doing the same things, writing, composing, playing. I started composing when I was 10 years old. And, um, you know, I got lucky. I don't know what I would have done with my life had I not started playing when I was five years old. Not to say that I ever would, but it was, it was a, a very hard struggle to make a living as a composer and a living as a violinist. You know, the last concert... Sure professional concert I did was with the Baltimore Symphony and Marin Oslop. That was uh, this year. And, you know, I, for the first time in a long time, I have a composition for an orchestra just literally sitting over there in my, uh, in my little studio office bedroom, which is fine. I mean, let it sit, you know. But, but yeah, that's, that's the broad strokes. And I think that I think the, the, the hardest part for me was figuring out, do I really want to get a, a doctorate in music composition? You know, I really just wanted to go to New York after, you know, I did my master's in a year. But I decided to do it because I, I, I figured out that if I terminated my degree, that's the term, and if I fulfilled it to its greatest completion and its greatest iteration, that is the, the doctorate, that it would be an asset. And of course, that has let, allowed me to teach at Arizona State University, teach at the New School, teach at Dartmouth. Um, it's allowed me to have this you know, kind of, it, it makes it easier as to be hired, let's say. Sure. And to be blunt, as a, as a black musician, it also gives a certain credential that unfortunately, sometimes in higher education is really needed, to tell you the truth. I mean, I teach yeah. side by side with a lot of um, ac uh, uh, academics who don't have a doctorate, you know. But I would say that, you know, like everything else, I think your education is really personal. I knew every great teacher, no matter what age I was. You know, when I was five years old, I knew Mr. Miller. 
was a great teacher and he had my interest at hand. I also know names are important. Mrs. Black, that was her name. She was a young teacher, <laughs> teaching high school for the first time. Young white woman, she meant well, but she was not a good teacher. She just wasn't. She did not have my best interest or the interest of her students. Had. Dr. Charles Noble, that's another one. He did not have the best interest of the students in his charge at hand. And I knew it then, and I, and I couldn't articulate it, but I know it now. So again, to parents, if your children are saying to you, Mom, Dad, this teacher is not a good teacher. This teacher is causing me harm. Listen, go, see. Don't, don't make this a point of discipline, right? Don't make this an issue of discipline. Teachers are not always right. And by the way, teachers don't always have the best interests of their students at hand. They just don't. They're human beings. In fact, maybe that's a moment where you as, an adult, as a parent could say, hey, you know, I, I went, I'm watching what you're doing. Can we have a conversation about it? You know, intervene. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off on that. But No, yeah. not at all. Yeah, you got to advocate for your kids. You got to advocate for your kids, man. You know, you do. They're, they're hip to it, especially now, right? Especially now. They are really aware. Really That's aware. another thing that kids have a really highly developed sense of not just fairness, but authenticity. Yes. Man, their, their BS meters are so good. Exactly. Exactly. And they, they know. They, they toe the moral line. They, they, can, they can ascertain your morality. You're absolutely right. And um, I think there were times when, well, to be honest, I didn't speak up enough to my parents. I certainly never spoke back or, you know, to a teacher. I would never think of it. But they were, you see what I'm doing right now? I mean, I remember their names. I remember the times where I just wasn't treated right. You know, it was wrong. But, um, you know, we shouldn't just say, well, that's a part of life. No, it doesn't have to be. It definitely doesn't have to be a part of life. Yeah, I think that's part of this whole year, this whole 2020 exactly thing. Is right. looking back and say, well, that, that thing's always been there. <laughs> yeah, but why? Exactly. So, exactly. yeah, I mean, I think as, as now as an old guy, I want to <laughs> say that, hey, there's, there's got to be some authority, right? There's, there is a teacher and there is a student. Sure. And the teacher is the one who's primarily educating the student, yeah. but it's never just a one-way street. Correct. Um, so we, I guess we want to encourage kids to, to walk that, that fine line mm. between, yes, in general, I'm teaching you. Right. But at some point, you've got things to teach me, too, and this can be a collaborative effort. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. At, at ASU, I, I actually, in my syllabi, don't use the word teacher and student. We use the word contributor. Everyone's a contributor to a classroom and world of ideas. And I just do that because... I feel at that point in their lives, whether they're 17 or 70, um, I, for exactly the re reasons you mentioned, I want this to be bilateral. I want this to be an exchange of ideas. So words are important, right? So let's, give, let's amplify that for a second. Again, I was talking to some academics, and I was urging them, well, let's investigate the words that we use. What if we didn't use the word rehearsal? Okay. Because rehearsal is heavy, has a whole connotation. It's actually engineered to mean not just what we're going to do, but how we're going to do it, who's in charge, where we're going to meet, what the goal is. Oftentimes it's one singular goal, the concert. But rehearsal, if we don't use that word, first of all, what word would we use and why would we use it? That's exciting to me. Because then it's not, okay, now there's possibility. See, now a rehearsal might be the first 30 minutes. Hey, man, let's just talk. Let's just talk. Let's just maybe watch some videos together, you know, let's, let's do anything other than what we normally do. And, and by the way, let's also be, let's also understand, because we're really bad about this as musicians. We dedicate every minute 
to basically one thing, <laughs> right? And that one thing becomes the driving thing. Nothing else. Really, nothing else is important. I would definitely, we, how can we not push against that now? We can't take 15 minutes to what they might say, check in. How are you? Let's do something. Let's eat together. You know, I spent 10 years in an or youth orchestra, never had a meal. <laughs> I, I sometimes didn't even know the name of the person next to me or the person over there. Let's do that. Can we just take 15 minutes and really, everybody just stand up, say their name, say something, 10 seconds, you know, whatever it is. I think we got to really look at um, the power of words now. That's also what we're doing. Because, see, the power of words, well, here's a way to put it. You know, George Floyd is a name. And, you know, Charleston, mm. Charlottesville, oh, New York City, Baltimore. It's almost hard to separate what happens now in a name or a word from the event. You know, right. if I say, for example, our vice president won't say three words. Just right. won't, you know, I don't even have to say it. You know what three words he won't say. And more importantly, you know why. This is the man of God, by the way. This is the man of God. By the way, I believe he is a good man. I do. I just think that he's lost his way. That's okay. But I think that if we were to say, well, we're not going to use the word rehearsal. We're going to use a different word. I think that's a really easy, even for ourselves. How I mean, See what I just did? I'm oh, sorry, I'm not going into it. Maybe I shouldn't use the word practice. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to think yeah, about we, it. We don't have a word for that. <laughs> right. Maybe we need to make one. We need up. a different word. Right. What would it be? Maybe it's, maybe it's a musical meditation. Maybe it's a moment of, of personal, well, maybe it's musical introspection. But, um, but in all seriousness, I think that words carry weight and they limit our possibility where a different word might explode and make our po make possibilities boundless. So that's, that's true. Yeah. Well, I want to take that and go, and I want to talk about the, uh, the opera that you did. We shall not be moved. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so speaking of words, right? I mean, most, I think most of the music that you've written has been, has been instrumental, right? A lot of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and then going to an opera, did you do the, uh, did you do the lyrics for the opera too? Uh, Mark Bamuti Joseph did the libretto. So yeah, the okay. words were by, uh, uh, Mark, a writer. Yeah. Who I've worked with for a long time now. Yeah. But talk a little bit about that, that piece of music and story behind it. And, and we'll play some of that for people too. Ooh, that's heavy. That's heavy, Matt. <laughs> Nothing light today. Yeah. You right. With the big words. Heavy, heavy times. Heavy times. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Opera Philadelphia approached me, invited me to write an opera for them. And as when you're the composer, you can you can uh, kind of put together your creative team. So I invited Mark to do the words and the great dancer, choreographer, author uh, Bill T. Jones to do the choreography. That was the core team, and and I'm not just, I'm sorry to direct and do the choreography. Um, Mark had the idea to focus on the, the move organization. Uh, to say that succinctly, the move organization is a social-based, culturally-based uh, um, cult, uh, organization where uh, the uh, participants all adopt the last name Africa and live together. Um, their children are born at home. Um, they are homeschooled. Uh, they are gardeners, artisans, a very self-sufficient society. Um, they, um, they compost. 
They were composting in the backyard and doing things that at the time were in so many ways counterculture. But now there's, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow talks about composting and homeschooling, right? But at the time they were doing it, they were, they were a multicultural organization that was mostly black, and they owned property, and they owned a large um, uh, set of homes, or this particular one, a townhome in downtown Philadelphia, whereas you can imagine um, at that time, in the 80s, they were seen as threat. So their neighbors didn't like the composting. They didn't like the homeschooling. They didn't like everyone's hair locked. And the, they decided to call law enforcement, and law enforcement decided to drop an incendiary device on the top of their home, which engulfed all the wood frame buildings on this particular block. I think about 150 homes burned to the ground, and six children uh, burned to death in the basement. Our opera begins with um, five young people in Philadelphia who have decided to no longer go to school, but have taken up in a home in Philadelphia where they decide to learn from the ghost of children. Mm. And a truancy officer is charged with getting them out of the home and back into school. And as oftentimes in the case, the opera explores that what I call a lethal intimacy between citizens and law enforcement. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's opera. It's, it's, by that I mean it's a story. It's a libretto. The story is being told by three um, uh, black men who, kudos to Opera Philadelphia. You talked about 9-11. The move incident in Philadelphia is in some ways their 9-11. It's an open wound. hasn't really healed. And this story is still very controversial. And, um, you know, we had people who were there that day um, come to the opera and experience it. And the opera is not a retelling of that event. The opera is something wholly original and new that picks up years later with these five children, one of whom is called Unsung, who doesn't sing. She's a spoken word artist, which I think is kind of cool, right? <laughs> that one of the main characters, protagonists in the opera is a spoken word artist named Unsung. Right. So, you know, it did well. Um, we were able to do several performances in Philadelphia. It also went to the Apollo. It also went to the to uh, the uh, Netherlands, um, Amsterdam. In in Philadelphia, we were able to have public, the the the, uh, the video that you have was done for school children in Philadelphia, some of whom live not too far from where the move incident happened, and um, yeah, it's it's um. You know, I think like, like a lot of things, you, you just have dreams, Matt. You know, like I dream of We Shall Not Be Moved happening at the Met in New York City. But you also have to understand the Met in New York City has never commissioned a black composer. You know, they won't say those three words. And our tax dollars goes to a lot of cultural institutions that don't want to represent us, you know. It's not just racial. They don't want to represent electric or electroacoustic playing. They don't want to amplify voices. You know, I see you out there, man. I see you in collaboration. I'm sorry, I don't know the names. With other violinists, and they got the hair, and you're doing a combination of, of um, Bach and uh, uh, Devon went down to Georgia. 
And yeah. right, and you're out there doing all of these things where I say to myself, well, not only is that fantastic, but every orchestra, every opera hall, by the way, should be doing your work. And that shouldn't be a, that shouldn't be a demand. <laughs> that should be no, normal. That should be every day, you know? And the, uh, in the theater, we talk about nights that are black. There's a, you know, that's, it's a, I mean, nothing's happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's, let's, let's light it up. <laughs> you know, let's not have things sit around as we slowly go back to whatever's waiting for us on the other side of this mountain. But I think that's the thing. I think that for me, you know, we shall not be moved. It hasn't been done subsequently. You know, it hasn't had a return engagement really anywhere. And I got lucky. It was done at the Apollo in New York City two nights. That was great and a big deal. And it was done in Amsterdam on, on two nights. But, you know, I think that a work like that and an opera like that, it does require investment, but it also reflects our values. And I see the work that you're doing as valuable. I really do. Um, I hope the work that I'm doing is valuable. I don't know. But I think it's valuable enough that it should be on our stages. And our stages represent who we are. Absolutely. Oh, say, love yourself, baby. Say self-love leads to sex love. Oh, gee, say time did not reconcile me to my chains. It made me familiar with them. Say black and hear yes. I think there's there's value in preserving the past, right? Yeah. That, that we want to say that the amazing works of Mozart and Beethoven mm-hmm. and Bach and all those need to be preserved because they're good enough to have lasted a few hundred years. Absolutely. But then there's there's also amazing work being done today, and there's there's a lot of nights in a year, assuming we get back to being able to to be in rooms together again. Yeah. Like you said, there's 365 nights in a year. And, you know, those stages are not lit up every night. That's exactly right. That's exactly and right. And I think the curtain's being pulled back a little bit now with, with a lot of the hashtags on Twitter yep. and a lot of the stuff that's trending and, and more of us are sitting at home and we've got time to, hey, what's what's trending today? Who said what? You know, I think we're, the curtain's being pulled back on a lot of the institutions that are more interested in preserving the past than advancing the future. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And, um, you know, I, I think it's always, it, it's, it, it has never really been, it never has to be or, excuse me, it can be and, you know, I mean, I want my son to experience the best of Mozart's marriage of Figaro. Absolutely. 
And even that is open to investigation because I would say, well, let's be, let's let's think about who's in the cast, right? In opera, it's all mm. about casting. So we don't have enough representation in our casting. And by the way, let's be clear about this. It's not like we don't have a, a bountiful and rich roster of incredible, diverse opera singers. Look right? at <laughs> Hamilton, for example. Exactly. You know, pop music's always leading the way. Isn't it funny about that, by the way? Yep. The pop music industry, say what you want. They're always the first. They're always, you know, you want to find equity? Look to commercial music, y'all. Look to pop music. You're absolutely right. Hamilton's a great example. Look to Broadway. A black man can play George Washington. Absolutely. And it doesn't wreck the story at all. Absolutely. And it makes it so much more interesting. It holds, you know, and the, and the musical language, right? It just holds things more in a really vibrant way. So the question is, well, where does Hamilton exist in opera? Where does Hamilton exist in, you know, what's, what's the ballet form of Hamilton? What's the orchestral view of Hamilton, right? That's one way to look at it. But, but really, more to the point is, or just along the same lines is, you know, there's, we need to, you know, I've, I've always, I'll say, I've, I've been talking about this privately. I haven't said this publicly yet. There's nothing wrong with a class action lawsuit. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we have a great judicial system in our country. It's not perfect. But a lawsuit isn't something that's negative, right? Lawsuits have rendered me free, right? One could argue. Lawsuits have allowed women the right to vote, right? And lawsuits speak to wrongs. They try to right wrongs. So that's one thing we can really start to think about, and I wanted to be more vocal about it. Maybe it will require a class action lawsuit, because fundamentally it is our tax dollars. Okay, let's be really clear about that. It's not just the, is it the North Carolina Symphony? Mm-hmm. Great. You know, you know those players, I know those players. Wonderful yep. people, but they're getting our tax dollars. So when I say that your, what I've seen of your work, there should be no question that the North Carolina Symphony really thinks long and hard and invites Matt Bell to work with them. Because Matt Bell you're and your family, you're helping to fund them. So if they're going to take your money, this is taxation without representation, right? If they're mm. going to take our money and not represent what we would like, we're not asking for 50-50 even. We're asking for 1%, 10%. 10%, that's not even fair, by the way. But if they said 10% of everything we do is going to be dedicated to things that Matt Bell's interested in, that EVS is interested in, why not? Why can't the North Carolina Symphony have a 10-year commitment to electric violin, uh, electrify your strings? No, electric, I'm getting my... Sure. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, yeah, you know, the, the point is taken. Yeah. yeah. It, electric violin like... shop, sorry, electric violin shop. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's not like orchestras had such a successful business model no, pre-COVID. That's right. Right. That's right. So it's it's like why why would you want to double down on the thing that wasn't working? That's right. Well, maybe that's part of it. Maybe you can help them redesign. I mean, electric violin shop. Sorry about that. I, I've got Mark and you know all these things in my head. Sorry. <laughs> I never electrify your strings and electric. But EVS, I I was there when you know. I'm sorry. I don't mean to. I don't know, but I'm just, from my point of view, you know, Blaze was really blazing this path towards something. Yes. And then there was a moment I remember, oh, wow, EVS is on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. I was there. Suddenly, there's a whole new messaging. 
and vibrancy even. And, and it's still there, by the way. It's brilliant. Even this, what we're doing right now, right? So that's what I'm right. saying. You have found, and the people that you work with have found a way to really say, no, 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 this is important, this is relevant, and I, it seems to me that there's a certain amount of success in the reimagination and the imagination that goes into keeping something going. Yeah, the North Carolina Symphony can learn from what's going on at Electric Violence. Absolutely. Why not? Let's just have a conversation about it. They need your help. They're getting your tax dollars. They need your help. The only question sure. is if they're willing to listen. The only question is allowance. The only question is invitation. You know what? And sometimes you need an advocate, right? We're in a time of advocacy and ally. I'll do it right after this. Well, I will send an email. I'm on the board for the League of American Orchestras. Right? I don't talk about everything that I do, but I'm on the board. That means that I am charged with representing them. I don't have a problem. We're sending an email right now and saying, look, you should really rethink your relationship to a homegrown business that's doing so much good in the world, that represents, that is so diverse in everything that it does. Sit down, have a conversation. But we'll talk about that. You know, the point is, yeah. I want to advocate for your work, right? You, you're advocating for me. I want to advocate for you. Well, and that's one of the things that I think the electric violin community does so well that's a little different from the classical world yep. is, is mutual advocacy. Yes, I love you that. Know, you know, we, we get these fiddle hangs at NAMM every year, yeah. and, it's, and it's all these amazing yeah. electric violinists that get together, and we're all huge fans of each other. Yeah. And yeah. for the next year, you see on everybody's Instagram, everybody's sharing pictures of everybody else that was at the hang and go, hey, Patrick Contreras just had a new CD out. You got to check him out. And Black Violin just released a new video. You got to check this out. <laughs> yeah. DBR just did this new thing. You got to check it out. Oh, man. So I, I love the fact that the community is very um, mutually supportive. It's true. It's true. And I got to get down there, man. I gotta, I, I've never been to one. Come hang, man. I'm going to do it. See, I'm, I'm doing it, all right? I'm doing it. Next time it happens. We got a guest suite here at the house. Come stay. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> How could I say? I mean, look at the... I'm looking at your wall, man. You got so many toys yeah, on the wall. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and bring your family. I will. We'll, uh, oh, that's, we'll make it a good that time. That would be so great. They would love it. Z I've got one. Zachary would love it. He would love it. Yeah. He's, he has been to North Carolina. There's a little baby. Um, I did a lot of stuff at North Carolina State University, mm -hmm. which is Raleigh. Oh, wait, you're in? Yep. Um, I'm in. I live in Cary, which is right, sort of the. It's the ta 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 suburb of. Raleigh. Oh, got it. Cool. Yeah, and, and we're very it, posh here in. Cary. Oh, very cool. Yeah, actually, that's how I would always go get to Electric Violin Shop was those residencies um, mm -hmm. through through North Carolina State University, Sharon Moore, and everything they do there. But um, yeah. Oh, thank you, man. I, I will take take you up on that. It'll, it'll be a little bit of time, of course, for us all, but I'll take you up on that. I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And same to you, man. We got to get you out to Arizona State University. Oh, I'd love. We got to get you out to New York if you want to come up and all that stuff, man. All that. Stuff. Always. Yeah, I love New York. Yeah. Well, tell people where they can find you and, and your stuff, and and if if they haven't found you already, they've obviously in the last hour or so heard that they need to. So tell people where they can find you. Real easy. Uh, so www.mynamedanielrumain.com. Uh, R-O-U, M as in Mary, A-I-N as in Nancy. That's where everything is, and that's a p website and a portal to j just about everything that I'm doing, including all my social media sites and you know the advoc advocacy work and performative-based work that I'm doing online. But that's, that's the one-stop shop. And um, I'm going to take the next couple of months and actually 
get real severe and organized and put stuff out that I haven't put out and just be a little more active in my own creative practice, as I say. But um, yeah, I'm always putting stuff out in different ways. And of course, you mentioned Requiem for the Living uh, in color. And um, yeah, that's where you can find everything that I'm doing. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, man. Thank you so much. And keep going, brother. We need you. We, we love you and we need you, man. Okay. That's another episode. Please remember to subscribe. Give us like a 12-star review and leave a comment on your platform of choice. That helps us a lot. Believe it or not, I still have two really awesome artist interviews in the can. And I cannot wait for you to hear them. But patience, all things in due time. Let's enjoy a little bit of Spaceships Over Haiti, and then we'll leave you until next time when we have another rock star violinist. <laughs>